I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On this episode, I have a conversation with Amanda Hunter, the executive director at the Barbara Lee Foundation. Amanda Hunter joins me to discuss the importance and the impact of electing more women as governors. Currently, there are only nine women serving as governor. There has never been a black or native woman elected as governor, and 19 states have never had a woman as governor. We discuss the barriers women face when running at the gubernatorial level. We also do an analysis of the campaigns of high-profile women who are running in upcoming cycles, including Stacey Abrams and Governor Kathy Hochul of New York. So, please enjoy this conversation with Amanda Hunter of the Barbara Lee Foundation. Amanda Hunter, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So, I just wanted to go through some numbers with you first. There are 19 states that have never had a female governor first number. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Only three women of color have ever been elected governor. There's never been a black woman for governor or a native woman for governor. And nine is the highest number of women governors serving at any one time. And currently we have nine women governors, right? So what is it about gubernatorial races that are a really tough ceiling for women to break, right? In the scope of all elected positions, why this one? Yeah, well, so our founder, my boss, Barbara Lee, has really dedicated her life to empowering women since the late 1990s. And very early on, she focused on governorships for women and realized in the 1998 election that out of the women who ran for governor, only the incumbents won. And so that was an aha moment for her that caused her to start this foundation. And since then, we have studied every gubernatorial race with a woman major party candidate since 1998. And what we've really found is that women face additional barriers with voters when they seek executive office. We find repeatedly in our work that it's one thing for voters to support a woman as part of a deliberative body, like a legislature, as a decision maker, But if she's going to be the decision maker and essentially CEO of her state, voters require a lot more evidence and frankly convincing that a woman is qualified for the job. Well, that makes sense. Does that also apply for lieutenant governor? Because what I'm thinking about right now or who I'm thinking about rather is Kathy Hochul. Did your studies find that it's the same thing is true for lieutenant governors? That is such a great question. We haven't specifically studied lieutenant governors, but we have been thinking about it lately because more and more women have become lieutenant governor. But just to give you one fun slash depressing visual, so far in history, only 45 women have ever served as governor compared to more than 2,300 men. So if we took every woman in history that's ever served as governor and put them on a New York City subway car or basically a subway car of any major city, not only would they all fit, but they would all get their own seat in most cities compared to men that would have to have multiple trains to fit all of them. (laughs) That is very depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, I mentioned Kathy Hochul and thinking about, you know, her position as lieutenant governor because I was thinking about what it means to have a state that's led by a woman. And, you know, I've interviewed her twice. And whenever I interview her, first of all, I'm really excited to see that email come into my inbox thinking like, you know, do you want to interview Kathy Hochul? Yes, I do. Because she always has advice from the perspective of, you know, being a working mother mm. or just a working woman. But, you know, she leads from that perspective. She was the co-chair of the Child Care Availability Task Force, right? Mm-hmm. She spearheaded the Enough is Enough campaign, right? It was a national model to combat sexual assault on college campuses. And those are clearly initiatives 
that are led through the lens of, I think, a woman, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm just curious as to what you think women bring to the table, you know, when they're governors. Oh, gosh, so much. And for Governor Hochul, especially, it was really powerful when she stepped into the governor's office, because there's something that we find in our research at the foundation called the imagination barrier. And that is the fact that A lot of voters just have trouble picturing a woman in the job. In our last research project, we asked voters to picture a governor and a majority still picture a man. And so Kathy Hochul is an incredible leader as an individual, but also having a woman lead the state of New York, which around the world to many people symbolizes America, frankly, is a very powerful step in breaking down stereotypes in voters' minds and in people around the world's minds on what a leader looks like. What we found, and I think you probably also would agree with this post-Women's March, is that when Barbara started this work in the late 90s, women were really trying to fit into an outdated template that was built for men when it came to campaigning. And now women have been showing up unapologetically as their whole self as leaders and bringing the entirety of their lived experience to the conversation. And I think that Governor Hochul is a powerful example when you look at her priorities that as a mother, as someone who has continually defied the odds in her political career and is an incredibly hard worker, she's bringing firsthand experience to the table when she's talking about things like childcare policy And that's why it's so important to have women in leadership roles, especially right now when the pandemic has disproportionately affected so many women and women of color. Yeah. And I just want to be clear that you don't have to necessarily be a mother, Mm -hmm. but I think in a position like, you know, um, being governor, right, or any kind of leader at that level, it's important that we have parity, right? And gender parity is just one type of parity. Because if we don't, you know, we leave out pockets of society and, you know, they're kind of marginalized. That's how marginalization happens. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we actually did some research on how voters perceive women leading during a crisis. And along those lines, voters know that women listen, not just to experts, but to affected populations. And I think just looking around the country during COVID, looking at women governors and mayors, we saw women reaching out proactively to find different populations that they knew were affected by COVID and the economic crisis in a way that men may not because of lived experience. And that's why it's so powerful. And we started this conversation talking about incumbents. And something I've noticed in relation to two of the highest profile women governors, um, Kathy Hochul, again, and Gretchen Whitmer of Michigan, is that often more attention is paid to the nefarious things that are going on around them, right? You know, things that have nothing to do with their actual performance. And, you know, in these two cases, with Kathy Hochul, for instance, a lot of media attention was paid to former Governor Cuomo, which is understandable. And I think due to that, less attention was paid to how she might perform as governor herself, right? The same with Gretchen Whitmer and that whole kidnapping plot. You know, for obvious reasons, that received a lot of coverage. But did your research uncover any trends around this? And also, how do women overcome this? And how do they redirect the attention back to their performance as leaders? Well, what we actually found in our research dating back many years is that when women run for office, they're not assumed to be qualified. So men can just put out their resume and it's sort of taken for granted. And women have to show while men can tell. And so we studied recently how voters perceive 
hypothetical women governor candidates running again for office and found that just in the same way voters don't assume that women are qualified, voters don't assume women are doing an effective job as leaders. And so there's an additional burden on women running as incumbents that they must sort of over communicate their accomplishments so that voters can have that top of mind since there is that disparity in the way that voters perceive women as leaders. Right. Have you seen that actually work in any case? And, you know, how does that actually look when someone's over communicating their accomplishments? Well, I think when you look at the women that have been successful in politics and risen through the ranks, they do it very well organically. And I think a real masterclass in that was watching the 2020 Democratic primary debates when you looked at our now vice president, Kamala Harris, and the other women senators, they were very skilled at organically weaving their accomplishments into their talking points. And my takeaway was that they've probably had to learn how to do that for many years in order to get to where they are right now politically. And I remember in one debate, Vice President Harris at the time said that she had run the second largest Justice Department in the country. And she kind of just threw it in there. But I thought, wow, that is so (laughs) powerful that she's reminding people that she managed so many employees, she managed a budget, all of these things. And it was an important visual. I think a lot of the more successful women sort of learn how to do that on the way. You can see that happening right now with Vice President Harris, with her, you know, exercising her foreign policy chops right now. You know, that's something that I think isn't being highlighted. So it's something she'll have to bring to the table and make sure that she over communicates that, I think. Absolutely. And one thing that we notice about Vice President Harris's narratives, which is frustrating at times, is that she's the first person that looks like her in this job. And we know that. But the fact that this job was dominated for hundreds of years by older white men means that in a lot of ways, there's no roadmap for the way it looks for her to do her job and what she's bringing to the table. And I think that a lot of the unfair criticism that she's received is as a result of her defying those stereotypes, unfortunately. Yeah, you think that we would talk about that more, the fact that she's a first, you know, in in many ways, (laughs) but we don't. But anyhow... You know, there are currently four women actually running for governor right now in upcoming races. So in Florida, you have Nikki Freed and Annette Tadeo. And that's going to be a really interesting primary race in Florida. And of course, there's Stacey Abrams and Nan Whaley of Ohio, right? What's also interesting is that there are 36 gubernatorial seats on the ballot in 2022. And potentially, if, you know, all of these women win their primaries, there will only be three women, you know, running for one of those 36 seats. Well, and there are also eight women who are currently serving as governors on both sides of the aisle who have declared that they're going to be running for re-election too. So I think there'll be a mix of incumbents and challengers that are running, but it's definitely a climb for women, especially in a state that has never had a woman governor to run as a challenger. What we found with our imagination barrier is that once a state has a woman governor, and this isn't a scientific evaluation, it's just observations, it opens the door for more. In many states that have had a woman, there's been two women, sometimes three, because it breaks down the stereotype in voters' minds. And in our neighbor, New Hampshire, 
one of the women who served as governor told us that a little girl came up to her and said that her brother wanted to be governor and she told him that he couldn't because only girls could be governor. And we love that story because it shows you that there's a whole generation out there that are going to have completely different perceptions of leadership than we do based on what they're seeing now. So you may have already answered this question earlier, but I just wanted to clarify something about the survey. So when you ask people whether they can envision a woman as governor, do they also struggle to envision women in other high-level elected positions like a senator or as mayor, for instance? Do they view those roles differently? Well, so it's a little different, and we've looked at this throughout our work. We focused on governorships just as a matter of consistency and because Barbara believed when she started this work that that was the pipeline to the presidency and her lifelong dream is to have a woman president. With the advent of social media, it seems that there are other pathways to the presidency and senators get a lot of national recognition now as well. What we've consistently found is that with any executive position, so that could be mayor too, voters need more evidence that women can be the sole decision maker and particularly around strength. How many times have you heard, is she strong enough to be commander in chief? Is she going to be able to deploy the National Guard? Even with our recently elected mayor of Boston, who's highly qualified and the first woman to be elected, people were saying, how is she going to manage all the employees in the city? How is she going to be in charge of so many people? You simply don't hear those same doubts around men because men are perceived to be strong. Women have to prove that they're strong while also not being too tough, because if women come off as too tough, then they might not be likable. And we've also found in our research that likability is a non-negotiable for women. It can be thrown out as a sexist term sometimes, but we know from our work that voters will not vote for a woman they do not like, even if they think that she's qualified. So there are all these additional barriers When women seek executive office in terms of proving that they're strong enough, proving that they have enough experience, proving that they're qualified, and yet not coming off as arrogant, not coming off as tough. It's really walking a very fine line in a lot of ways. You know, that just pains me because there are so many ways to trip up in that kind of likability scoreboard, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, most of them just aren't fair. Like, you know, going back to VP Kamala Harris, you know, even though we were talking about governorship at her, just recently, you know, being on the stage with the president of Poland, you know, she laughed and that became the bigger story Mm -hmm. than the whole narrative around what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. Yes. And I think it's also an example of the double standard that we see for women in her role. And this was very stark to me during the 2020 primary. One example was Senator Gillibrand was on a campaign stop and ate a piece of fried chicken with a fork and a knife. And then her campaign had to spend days defending her. And people were even saying she's hiding something, having this kind of sinister undertone. Whereas John Kerry in 2004 put Swiss cheese on his Philly cheesesteak at a campaign (laughs) stop and was able to laugh it off. And that's just the double standard that Men in the vice president role have been able to make gaffes like Dan Quill misspelling potato and have been able to kind of become a late night joke, whereas Kamala Harris ends up having days of relentless criticism in the media that then derails from important policy discussions. 
right? It goes deeper. It goes to, you know, it's about her professionalism, right? Or whether mm-hmm. she understands the job. It's just, it's, you know, much, much deeper than just like, oh, it's just a, a minor gaffe that we can laugh off. Yeah, I get your point. You know, I want to talk a bit about Stacey Abrams. Yeah. So she's running again and she'll be running against Brian Kemp mm-hmm. again. You know, she was a stellar candidate in 2018, but now she just feels like she's ready for something bigger. But anyhow, she's running and I'm just curious as to what your take is on that. Well, it's interesting. I saw Stacey Abrams. She did a tour stop here in Massachusetts in the fall, just a little in conversation at a theater. And I was really struck by what you actually just said, that she received a hero's welcome from the audience and people were just hooting and hollering and standing and clapping. And she seemed almost uncomfortable because she's so modest and sort of focused on the task at hand and the job. And I think that this will be a fascinating campaign. When Stacy ran for governor, the first time early on in her primary, she was up against another woman named Stacy in the Democratic primary. And we saw that her campaign actually had a hard time being taken seriously in the media. And people, especially local press, really weren't that open to covering her as a serious candidate, which seems insane now to think about. But it gets back to the fact that There's a lot of doubts around women and their qualifications, and sometimes it's very hard for women to be taken seriously and given the same respect as their male counterparts or for women of color as their white counterparts. Yeah, I remember that moment. Do you remember what the pivot was, the pivot point for her in that race? Because obviously she won the primary, but then when did people start to take her seriously? I think after she won the primary, she was at least given more attention locally But I think that the amazing thing about Stacey Abrams is that she really stays true to her convictions. And I think that it seems anyway that she's able to focus out all of that noise and really focus on the task at hand. And it seems like that's what she did. And certainly after the election in 2018, the fact that she chose to stay in Georgia to continue doing the work that she had been doing to not make it about herself, but to really focus on voter empowerment, I think really cemented her place in the minds of a lot of people as a hero. And also kind of as we were talking about earlier, that there were moments in those years that a lot of women and a lot of people in America needed heroes, frankly, like Stacey Abrams. Yeah. And since then, in those four years, she has become, you know, a voting rights expert, right? I mean, that's without a doubt she is. And, you know, I feel like there's, you know, we're kind of in a race against time because as quickly as she is trying to empower voters in Georgia, Republicans and Brian Kemp Mm -hmm. and conservatives in that state are trying to suppress the vote. Right. And it's interesting because I think that if she does not win this race, and and I believe that she will, but in case she doesn't, I do think that it will be due to voter suppression efforts. It's very scary to see the voter suppression efforts happening across the country. And we are so grateful for the people that are doing the hard work on the ground to protect access to voting. And I think that living up here in New England, people don't always understand how difficult it can be in other states and kind of take it for granted if folks live in a state where access to voting is fairly easy. And I think that that should be communicated to people better so that they can understand what it's like to have to wait in line for hours and not be given water and all of these crazy things. So let's just shift a bit and talk about Nan Whaley of Ohio. What do you think about that race? 
I think it's really exciting that Mayor Whaley has chosen a woman as her running mate, so running on a ticket with Cheryl Stevens, who's the former mayor of Cleveland. And it's interesting because some people have reacted with an eyebrow raise, oh, two women running together on a ticket. How many times have two men run together on a ticket? (laughs) Exactly. So I think that that's really interesting and actually fairly rare to have two women running on the same ticket. But Mayor Whaley was so inspiring dealing with a horrific mass shooting in her city and just showed so much strength and resilience and inspired her city. So that's definitely a campaign that we will be watching closely. So how do we encourage more women to give this a shot, to run for governor? And how do we set them up so that they win these races? Well, my boss, Barbara Lee, is one of the biggest recruiters in politics and is known to encourage women to run for office in ladies' rooms and all over the place. But I think that years ago, it was the case that women had to be asked to run for office. And I think that there's been a shift since 2017 where women are looking around at problems in their community and trying to solve them. And before they know it, they're volunteering on campaigns, activated, and then maybe running for office themselves. And they're sort of a, why not me? I'm not going to wait my turn energy, which I really appreciate and love to see. And because there are barriers to running for governor, it's important that we continue to have training programs for women, although women can't train their way out of bias, and also to educate voters about their own bias. And finally, I think having more women running for office, serving in office, and publicly shown as leaders will help to break down some of those stereotypes. And as more and more younger people become able to vote that have grown up in a completely different culture where women and people of color have had more representation, not enough, than when our generation was younger, hopefully we will see a bigger shift. Yeah, I think that's really important. You know, the more we see ourselves reflected in these offices or these positions of leadership, the better it is for the younger generations to to come in and have more confidence in taking up those positions of leadership, right? Absolutely. And we actually just did a study that we put out last week and found that women said in this poll that having a Black woman appointed to the Supreme Court was a powerful reminder that Black women belong in positions of power. And of course, that makes sense. But at a time where in the rest of that poll, women had some pretty dire statistics about how they've been affected by the pandemic and how they're burnt out from politics, it's a bright spot that, like you said, if women can see themselves reflected at the table, it's inspiring, even if they don't want to run for office, even if it's just about getting a promotion in their own line of work, it gives an extra boost of confidence. Well, thank you so much, Amanda Hunter. Thank you so much for joining me. You know, we'll keep watching these races. And yeah, just thank you for all the work you're doing. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. It's great to speak with you.